Hey, Gestalt Education Nation, uh, new sponsor alert, new sponsor alert. Today, we're excited to announce uh, Dynamic Disc Designs and Jerome Fryer. Uh, we have an awesome discount code for you. Just use the code Gestalt uh, to get a little bit of money off on the, the Dynamic Disc Designs. They're the, the most realistic anatomical discs that we've ever seen. If you caught our, our episode with uh, Dr. Stuart McGill, you saw an entire shelf full of them. Everything from cavitation instruction to uh, uh, disc dysfunction to SI joint dysfunction, all sorts of amazing joint stuff. Joint movement, yes. vertebral movement. Absolutely. So uh, go to Dynamic Disc Designs, uh, use the code Gestalt. As always, you can use the code Gestalt on Core 360 belt to get a, a little discount on the belts there. We love to use that for biofeedback for teaching respiration, intra-abdominal pressure, and how the, the abdominal wall should be working in, during function. Uh, and then the last one, use the code Gestalt Education 10. Those will all be in the description in the podcast. Gestalt Education 10 at humanlocomotion.com uh, to get off uh, some money off of all of his awesome gadgets and tools and uh, rehab uh, materials. What's your favorite, Brett? He's got a trunk full, but I think, you know, integrating the Topro in, I think, has been a game changer for us here at the office. So I think that would be my pick. Beautiful. All right, guys, don't forget, use the code Gestalt, Gestalt Education 10. Uh, visit the show notes and you'll be uh, hooked up. Thanks. Enjoy the episode. All right, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Excel Education Show. Uh, today, we are back in Colorado Springs at the uh, Active Release Tech uh, ART headquarters here with the one and only Mike Leahy. So uh, it's been a year to almost the day that That's we were here. That's hard to believe. It's I know. Really? It's crazy. A year already. Yeah, it's crazy. So um, today, we're, we're kind of changing gears. So the last time we spoke, we talked about everything ART, the history of it, how you conceptually came up with it, the the technique itself, all those types of things. Today, we're going we're gonna to kind of pin you down to a little bit more of a direct question or a direct topic. Uh, we're going to talk about nerves, right? We're going to talk about uh, muscles play with nerves. We're going to maybe introduce a little fascia with with nerves. We're going to talk about uh, all sorts of neurology that involves that. And so uh, you've had a long, uh, long nerve course in the ART curriculum for quite a while now, correct? Correct. Yeah. And so what, what kind of started that or did that start out of a need? You saw that there was a, a need to start teaching that or, or kind of what, what started your fascination with, uh, with those types of things? Well, it, I look at it like it, it goes, uh, it starts from basic chiropractic philosophy. If you put a thousand chiropractors in a room and try to get everyone to agree on one thing, pretty hard. But that was actually done in California 20 years ago. And the only one thing that everyone could buy into was the sub subluxation causes interference with that nerve transmission. That was it. And, and, and that the manipulation was the fix for that. Sure. So if, if you look at how many places does a subluxation of a vertebra affect a nerve in the body. How many of those sites are there? <laughs> well, it, that, that's a kind of a trick question because it depends on how you count the nerves of the sacrum. But let's say there's 32 on each side mm -hmm. for nerve roots that can be affected by a subluxation. So there's 64. How many, how many places can you have interference with a nerve function outside the spine? At least 100 on each side. Uh, at least. At <laughs> least. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, the problem is, like the ulnar nerve, for example, you know, we know it gets trapped at the elbow uh, near the uh, flexor carpi ulnaris. And, and then it can be, uh, you know, affected in the uh, tunnel of Guyon. So there's two places. But it, it can be trapped any place in between or the entire area. So you can't really count 
Sure. But that, that's, that's a lot of places. So I happen to be a chiropractor. If I believe that I need to address problems with nerves, I can't just address the spine. I'm not even getting half of it. Right. So that, that developed into, okay, where do nerves get entrapped? And I'd say entrapped, that's a, uh, there's either too much tension or too much pressure on a nerve. Those are the two major things. Um, and that's caused by pressure from surrounding tissues or the nerve is stuck mm. to a tissue. Uh, call it scarring. Uh, it's not always scarring, but it, 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 let's call it that. The, uh, and so it can't slide. And so when you move where the nerve is supposed to slide, it doesn't slide then there's a, there's a real common entrapment site there. And what are some of the key things you use from a diagnostic palpatory standpoint? Like what is, what allows you to be able to, to feel this? Well, that's the next question. How do you find these things? Yeah. Okay. Well, fortunately you can find them with your hands better than you can with electrodiagnostics mm -hmm. or an MRI or a CAT scan. Mm -hmm. You know, once in a while they'll show up on that uh, with uh, electrophysiology that's, you know, there's as many false positives as f there are yeah. false negatives. So it's kind of a wash. Gives you an idea, but you, it's a lot easier with your hands. And the trick is to use the nerve. We, let's say the, the median nerve. So it goes from the end of two fingers in your thumb all the way into the, uh, well, it, it changes its name in the shoulder area, but it goes all the way into the spine. Okay, those, those cells right. go all the way into the spine. So where can it be entrapped and how do you find it? Uh, it used to be thought that the most common one was the carpal tunnel. Yeah. It's almost never the carpal tunnel. <laughs> yeah. That's right. So we, we pretty much never do carpal tunnel surgery anymore because it's usually not there. And even if it is there, it can be fixed manually without sure. uh, surgery anyway. Right. So, but if I take my fingers and the thumb and extend those, I'm pulling on the nerve, right? Mm. If it was going to be stuck in the carpal tunnel, if I put my, my finger or my thumb at the distal edge of the carpal tunnel, and then extend the thumb and the fingers as far as they'll go, if the nerve is stuck, I'll feel that tissue tighten up because the nerve's going to want to pull whatever it's stuck to. Right. And you can feel that. Um, we say if, if you want to do, you know, do that, all find all these spots on your own, you can. It's going to take you 15 years because you don't know what they feel like. But if somebody puts your thumb on it and then you know, finds an entrapment, puts your thumb on it, and then pulls it and say, okay, what your thumb on right now, you can feel that little tug. You know, move, move your thumb sideways back and forth. Okay, feel the nerve, that little string in there. Once you find it once, once it actually demonstrates it to you, then it's easy. Sure. You'll always find it. So what, what we've done is we've tried to quantify all these sites of entrapment and the palpation method of finding it by locking tissues in place and moving the nerve to, to a place where it's actually easy to feel. And you, you can find all these entrapment sites and you can feel whether it's stuck or sliding. It's aided by symptoms. Sure. Because if you find the place that it's stuck and you pull on it, you're more than likely you're going to duplicate what the patient says is the problem.
It, it's not a perfect indicator, but it is an indicator. Sure. So the whole secret is quantifying it, but teaching it in a way to where it jumpstarts the learning process and it makes it useful to you very quickly. That makes sense. Yeah, oh yeah. What what ended up making you put that in the curriculum originally? I remember when I went through the coursework, you know, you had all the different muscle releases, and then at the end was the nerve entrapment. So was there a moment in your career when you were like, okay, we need to start thinking about this? How did what well, was that? That that's probably a fault of mine. When I did the Not first be in the beginning. <laughs> yeah. The uh when I did the first ART course, I I I used a, a beta version of the first video editing commercially av system available. It was just a big circuit board. And I hooked tape recorders up to it, and, and, and then we filmed it in the front office of our clinic. And we filmed 27 protocols that covered the entire body. And I thought that was enough. And you should be able to take those 27 and then do little modifications here and there and, exp and, and then cover the entire body. Because I, I guess that's the way I thought. Uh, that was not accurate. <laughs> you had to define it a whole lot better to make it usable. So it's just been the process. You know, defined all the muscles, ligaments, tendons, and joints first, and, and nerves kind of along with that. And then, then I realized, well, we haven't done enough on the nerves. So then we did an actual nerve course. Uh, and we call it long track nerves, the five major long nerves those tracks and, and where they, where they ran into problems. And we made that a course. So that's how that happened. <laughs> what are the most common uh, nerve entrapment sites that you find? Obviously you were hinting around the pronator teres earlier. What are the, what are the other big ones that people are missing out in practice? Do you think? The big, biggest one is uh, sciatica. Mm. The, I, I hate to think of how many people when I first started practice that I thought they had a disc problem because you could see bulge on the, the MRI, CAT scan yeah. or the MRI. I mean, MRI was just starting then. That kind of date, dates me. The, uh, the, but you could see what might be a problem there and put that together with the symptoms. Oh, it's a disc problem. Yeah. And, and probably three-quarters of those were not disc problems. Right. So the most common is actually a nerve root stuck in the foramen, uh, one of the sciatic nerve roots. And... The second most common is the sciatic nerve stuck in the hip. And it's actually, it, it does get stuck and trapped by the piriformis, but that's not the majority of them. The majority of them in the hip are actually the superior gemellus and obturator and inferior gemellus. They get stuck to those. Although they're usually blamed on the piriformis. Sure. When the nerve root gets stuck, are those old herniations and cases like that that have kind of progressed into that? Or what do you think the not, trajectory not is? Not usually. No. Not okay. usually. It's, it's so a no slow disc pathology at all, just the nerve. Well, well there's not, there, there is obviously disc pathology sometimes. Right. Yeah, and, and, and it will cause a great problem. Right. Um, but far more common is, is the nerve root stuck in the foramen. Right. And if you look at it as how, how could I irritate that nerve? Well, I could yank on it real hard. I could run. A sprinter would take really big steps. You know, he's, he's, that nerve has to go about a centimeter and a half through the foramen with that full range of motion. Right. Well, what if I'm using it really hard, hard and I cause some inflammation in there just from the movement? And, and then I do it again and I do it again. And so it's always inflamed. 
it'll it'll cause that inflammation can cause scarring and the scarring will start to bind the tissues and that will make the problem worse which causes more inflammation which causes more scarring and you get into what we call the cumulative injury cycle sure. and the and you can solve the the inflammation problem by by relaxing the tissues or Using steroid, injecting it. If you get in the right place, it'll take the inflammation away. Oh, that's, that's all gone. Mm -hmm. But in a week, it's back again. Because you didn't break, literally, we, we say release. Release is a better word than break. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you break the connection between the nerve and the frame in itself. Sure. So, you know, another, the, the sciatic nerve also can actually be stuck to the pelvis, the bone, in, in the, the little arch where it comes out and then goes, then goes in between the muscles. It doesn't happen that often, but that's similar to the nerve root stuck in the foramen. So then the secret again is, well, how do you palpate that? Yeah, because I would imagine that's pretty deep at that point. Well, the sciatic nerve at the foramen is actually remarkably easy, and, and it's easily learned. Because it doesn't depend much on palpation. Uh, it's very difficult for me to put my thumb in the foramen and feel what the nerve's doing. Right. But what I can do is lay the patient on the side, keep the knee straight, and flex the hip. When I flex the hip, the tension on the hamstrings increases in a linear curve. So the farther I go, the tighter it gets. And it's proportional. It's a, it's a steady increase. If the nerve root is stuck in the foramen, you'll, you'll get tight, tighter, 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 and all of a sudden that rate of tightness just jumps up. And all of a sudden it locks up those hamstrings. That's not the muscle. Right. That's the sciatic nerve that's stuck in the foramen. So now I know where it is. And then, then what I'll use, I'll use the entire spinal cord and the entire sciatic nerve and move them so that nerve root goes in towards the spinal cord and out the spinal cord using that high entire complex back and forth. And you can free up the nerve like that. Sounds a little bit like neural mobilization there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, there's yeah. different names, yeah. you know, nerve gliding, neural mobilization. Sure. The yeah. problem with the way that is usually approached is you stretch the entire nerve and then you move one thing at the end. Yeah, you're doing... You're not getting a lot of relative motion. There. Right. It's right. a good diagnostic process, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but it's not going to fix things very well. So you have to be a little more clever than that. And, and use that entire nerve complex to move everything one way and then the other. And that's why we call it long track nerve release. I'm sure. Because right. you're moving the whole tract. Yeah. yeah. And so, you, you know, in the frame, it's one thing. I don't have to have a contact, so it's easier. But let's say it's stuck in the hamstrings, you, you know, right where you have that split in the medial and lateral hamstrings. I can hold the hamstrings proximal and you know, arch the back, take the pressure off the spinal cord and the sciatic nerve above the hamstrings, extend the hip, hold the hamstrings proximal, and then extend the knee, dorsiflex the ankle, extend the toes, pull the nerve distally, and hold the muscles proximally. And then reverse my tension and do it the other way. That way you get 
the most relative motion possible, and I'm, I'm, holding the, I'm pushing the tissue the opposite way the nerve's moving until it releases. Beautiful. I love it. There's been uh, a lot of debate of whether there's actually a double crush syndrome. Do you, are you familiar with that term? Like where you we, call, have... we call that a whole nerve syndrome. Okay. Because uh, I think double, double crush is, is uh, that's a useful term. But I don't think it's actually double crush. Right. That's what a lot of people well, say about it. Yeah. That's one of the problems why NCVs and uh, electrodiagnostics are, they're such a big false positive and negative. Because let's, let's say the nerve actually is stuck in the carpal tunnel. I put pressure on it. So I should get a positive test across in conduction velocity, you know, in, from, through that area, right? Well, the problem is that whole nerve is affected by that. So that conduction velocity can change along the entire course of the nerve because mm. the whole nerve is affected. Yeah, exactly. So then you get confusing and mixed results on where the problem is. That's when I think you have to rely on your palpation skills Physical. to isolate where the entrapment is. Sure. sure. And that's how we found that it's almost never in the carpal tunnel. And that's, that's probably why carpal tunnel surgery, surgery has such dismal results. Right. 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 What about, are you using, uh, what, what other testing besides palpation are you using in those patients? Uh, patient comes in with numbness, tingling in the hand. What are some of the other things that you're utilizing? Are you relying majority on palpation or in symptoms in general, just subjective symptoms or are there Sym other things you're, symptoms you're using? Symptoms in general will give you a start. Sure. It's a, and it's a good start. Mm -hmm. The, the nerve entrapment is often at the most, or near, the most proximal symptom site, okay. Okay. but not always. Sure. Because you, you can trap the sciatic nerve, say, at the foramen, yeah. and, and your foot goes numb first. Fair. So it's, you know, it's, not, it's not always true. Right. But, you know, that's a starting point. Symptoms certainly is. And also, if, if you know by symptoms that it is the sciatic nerve... That's a pretty good starting point, too. That's very good. Yeah. But, but what we emphasize to people is that it's only a starting point. So we use a process called the diagnostic algorithm. Mm -hmm. Show me the position or motion that causes the problem. Not pain. I don't want to limit it to pain. Right. Show me. Demonstrate me to me where the problem is. They're going to know. Okay, that, that becomes my test motion. So in a case of sciatica, a, a person leans over and gets sciatica down the leg. Mm. Okay. Well, I kind of know it's sciatica, but I'm not going to jump on the disc right away. Sure. Because there's, there's that, you know, three feet or two and a half feet worth of sites that it could be. Mm -hmm. So what I'll do is that's my starting point from what they say is, is a symptom, but I've also got a motion or a position. So I'll use that as a test. So I'm going to have him repeat that motion, and I'm going to start to palpate from the distal end of the sciatic nerve and palpate the entire course until their symptom matches what I'm feeling with my hand. And almost always, if you find the right spot, that will tug on your fingers just before they say, there it is. Right, right. And, and if that happens, and if you're stubborn enough to keep looking and not fall for the most obvious place mm -hmm. 
and you find the, the source, then that, well, you fix that first. <clears throat> and then usually the other symptoms go away. Sure. And that's confirmation that you found the source. If the other symptoms don't go away, then it's either there's some other spot too, right. or I found a spot and I'm not good enough to fix it, at least in one, in one try. Sure. And is it as simple as you do the manual treatment and we do a couple treatments, everything's fine? Or is there any kind of home care that uh, with uh, neuromobilization or anything like that that they would go home with? Or basically, we've taken care of the problem manually and then there would yeah. be no home component to that? Well, in particular with nerves, when, when you have, let's say nerve root is stuck in the hip. If you try to stretch that, and mobilize it yourself, really all you're going to do is irritate yeah, it. Yeah, that's true. It, it, it doesn't yeah. progress very well. I can't see it. That's not 100% of the cases. But, but a it's lot 90, of time, Yeah. No, you're right. And, and, and so, but after you fix it, then the question is, will exercise or mobilization help? Well, th- my first thought is, if, if you truly release the nerve, it's released. It's not going to come back right away. But if you do the same thing that you did for six years and that caused it to happen, you can make it happen again. So then I think it's important to show the person what you think the cause was and how to avoid that. And it's not usually, I'm a runner, okay, don't run anymore. (laughs) It's it's usually uh, avoid... It sounds really trite to say that, but if it hurts, don't do that. <laughs> right. It, more accurately, if it hurts and it gets worse as, as you're doing it, then you just went too far sure. or too hard. Uh, I think that's a little yeah. more accurate. But that's not to say that exercise or mobilization is a bad thing. It's a great thing. And and I think in in, in terms of neuromobilization, if you fix the entrapment, if once in a while you keep it moving, it's a lot harder for it to get stuck. Mm-hmm. Because when it starts to form a little scar tissue, say from inflammation, you're doing the same things again, and it gets inflamed, and it's trying to form that scar tissue. If you keep moving the nerve through the pronator teres, it's not going to get stuck. Sure. Because you keep breaking it loose mm-hmm. when there's almost no excessive tension on it. Right. In, in your experience, uh, if you have a let's, I don't know if you use maybe primary or secondary, let's say you have multiple entrapment sites. If you, if you're finding the key link, do you find that the other entrapments are going away or do you find yourself having to work on maybe two, two different sites that it's being entrapped? Or is there usually just like one primary and then you're good to there's, go? It could be either one. Okay. And there's two part. there's two parts to that really. Okay. Using double crush, which I call a whole nerve, mm-hmm. whole nerve uh, situation. Uh, I'm stuck at the pronator teres, uh, the median nerve at the pronator teres. And, but it's very common for it to be stuck in the shoulder, uh, right in what we call the coracopectoral tunnel. It can be stuck to the subscapularis, the pec minor, the, even the coracoid process itself. It can be stuck to the bone, that, that medial tract that eventually forms the median nerve. The, uh, so I fix it here. Patient says it's completely gone. Okay. But I have to trace the nerve from the fingers to the spine. Or I, I really fall vulnerable to it coming back again. Right. So you have to find all those other spots that it could be trapped. 
and that that's hard for us to do because when we fix that spot and the patient jumps up, it was completely gone. You're a miracle worker. It's really easy to stop there and take credit for it. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. It yeah, really yeah. is. Sorry to interrupt your episode, guys. I have to tell you about an important date to write down in your calendar, November 3rd through the 5th, the first annual Neurodynamics World Congress coming to you at Parker University in Dallas, Texas, November 3rd through the 5th. This is an amazing opportunity to see a true gestalt weekend, meaning integration of multiple different people, multiple different techniques of the likes of Michael Leahy, Antonio Stecco, Brett Winchester talking about DNS, Annie O'Connor talking about pain classification mechanisms, David Seeming talking about the internal chemistry, uh, Jeff Bove talking about the research around nerves, uh, and of course, Michael Shacklock talking about neurodynamics. This weekend at Parker University, November 3rd through the 5th, is, 5th is your opportunity to see not only lectures, but hands-on demonstrations and panel discussions at the end of every day to combine this all together to show how each of these different techniques is influencing the nervous system. This is an amazing opportunity to see all these people in one stage and one opportunity to have some fun with us uh, in Gasol education. So, uh, Thanks for taking the time to listen to this episode, and we can't wait to see you at Park University. It's November 3rd through the 5th. Registration open at gestaltedu.com backslash courses. See you there. That's exactly mm-hmm. right. Well, what so, do you think about, like, in baseball right now with pitching? We have an epidemic problem with thoracic outlet syndrome. So, we, I mean, we're doing very, very invasive surgeries for that. Do you think... We never do surgery for thoracic outlet anymore. Yeah, elaborate. So, tell me what you're... What Especially, you're like, the vascular component is the main reason why we're, we're getting to that point, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had a, you know, a surgeon get really mad at me for even suggesting that there's some something other that you can do for a thoracic outlet. Right. Uh, the, in my mind, the most common cause of that is that the neurovascular components get stuck in between the anterior and the middle scalene. Very easy to find, very easy to fix. You know, you relax the nerve on the proximal side, you hold the one or both of those muscles proximally towards the spine, and and you abduct, extend, externally rotate, extend the elbow, take because it's usually the median tract is the worst. Not always. But you so you do all three tracks, mm-hmm. your median radial ulnar tract. But you also have to pay attention to the the vascular components as well. Because they can be stuck there as well. But that's not the only spot. Uh, there's, there's several, I'd say, areas between the scalenes and the clavicle, subclavius, pect minor, and, and then that uh, coracopectoral, you know, tunnel. Sure. It could be stuck anywhere in there. And just to the roof of the axilla, very common for it to be stuck in there. Mm-hmm. I'd... I'd I don't know the statistics because I haven't tried to document those, but I'll bet the uh, those neurovascular structures being stuck in the axilla itself on muscle or just the roof of, of the axilla and the coracoid process is maybe more common than just the scalenes. But I'd say they're, they go together. Sure. So if one's there, the other's probably going to be there. Fair. So... If, say, you had a quarterback that had several surgeries in the neck and had a thoracic outland syndrome and he had almost no strength in the triceps and has, it was using every other muscle to throw the ball and doing it pretty well. And then you found those five nerve entrapments 
between the neck and halfway down the arm and fix that and gain full strength. That would be a proof sure. of that concept. Mm-hmm. That quarterback just happened to be. No, no, is yeah, someone coming out of retirement? Blue and orange there? Or? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so uh, no, there's not. There's not only one. Sure, there's not only one sure. uh, quarterback. And yeah. we say that you know the master acupuncturist only needs one needle. So like when we're talking about entrapment sites, is it yeah. you've done this so long, Mike, that where you know in that example, you know exactly where you need to be, or you know when you're get a seminar going on here next door. Do you teach them to just go ahead and release all the entrapment sites just to be safe as you're learning, as you get better? Or what does that all look like as far as, you know, your career path? And the, the more experienced we are, you know, we've all seen patients with a, uh, a shoulder impingement syndrome. Okay. It's the subscapularis. Well, it usually is. Yeah. Start there. <laughs> but the problem is, is our experience makes us think automatically that we know what the... And that's, if you think about it, we all learn to diagnose by symptoms. Right. Memorize 8 million symptoms, put these four together, and you have shoulder impingement. It works pretty well, but only if you know all 8 million symptoms, and you can take those four out of that. But even that, you can be wrong. And I am as guilty at that is anybody. So, I think too, when you've had success, you've seen three times when subscapularis was the miracle treatment, you see the fourth and you automatically are going there. Oh yeah. You know? I fall victim to that Same. all the <laughs> yeah. time, yeah. you know, for years, you know, we said subscapularis, pronator teres and psoas are the three miracle muscles. Yeah. You could make an entire practice out of any one of those, but there's a lot of people that you wouldn't fix. You'd make them feel better, right. but you wouldn't fix. Sure. So go through the process, do the diagnostic algorithm and, and keep doing it. Step, you know, step one, show me the position or motion. Step two, I palpate it or, or step one, palpate that. And I feel for the first aberrant thing that happens. Okay. Not the most obvious thing. Sure. More than half the time, it's not the most obvious, but that's what we think we know what yeah, it is. Right. So what happens is we're looking for that subscapularis because we think that's what it is. And if we find it, okay, I'm done. I'll go fix that. And, and then I've done a miracle. It's, it's hard, not, but don't fall into that trap. Find the first aberrant thing, and it may not be the most obvious thing. And then, then when you isolate it and figure out what structure that is that you found, and then fix it, which is the easiest part, then go back to step one and do it again because they'll move a little farther and something else will show up. And you keep doing that step one, two, three, one, two, three until the patient says nothing's wrong and you say nothing's wrong. Then you're done. <laughs> sure. But you have to work hard to do that. Right. 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 Yeah. You got to want to get better and you got to grind it out and you got to. It's frustrating because yeah. it, it depends so much on your palpation skills. Mm-hmm. And that's what we spend all our time doing now is jump starting people on palpation skills. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it, it's frustrating because you just spend a lot of time looking for these spots and they're subtle. They're hard to find. So most of the time, sure. So it's hard. And how often do you think out in the wild that people are getting treatment, uh, not necessarily an ART, but they're responding to the treatment, let's just say greater occipital nerve entrapment. Yeah. So they're doing something and they just thought that it was their treatment that was helping it, but actually it ended up being this nerve entrapment. Do you think that's happening quite often throughout the body? 
Obviously, yes. Yeah. 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 I, I think that's that's the difference between... I guess what I'm... Do you need... Yeah. How important is specific treatment for greater occipital nerve and treatment versus what yes. everyone else is doing? It's a scale. Yeah. The more specific and accurate right. that you can be, the better your outcomes will be. Mm-hmm. And we're all on that scale someplace. Right. I, I would like, like it if all of us kept moving up that scale, more specific, more accurate, and that road never ends. Right. There, there, there's no time where you can say, okay, I have that. I know that. I'm good at that. You, you have to keep learning it. Sure. We talked a little bit about this on the first uh, podcast, but not the treatment of active release, but what are some tips that you would give somebody on just getting better solely at palpation? Besides experience, of course, that's the obvious one. But like, what what is it that you actually need to get better at? You got to know anatomy, of course. Well, I'd, I'd say, you know, find somebody who's better than you are and have him show you those problem sites. Find a good mentor, yeah. It, well, it's hard, it's hard to do because, you know, we're seeing people that come in. You may not see X, Y, Z right. every day. Oh, that's true. So yeah. it's really hard to do. But that would be the most advantageous is actually to... To to palpate on a patient that already you know has something and find it, now you know what it feels like. You'll never miss it. Yeah. Now, you know the next best thing is wh- whatever technique you like. Go to go to the class, and in in the class, there's all kind of things in a, in the people that are in the class that you can find. Right. There's always things that you can find. When something is found, everyone, you should palpate that and see what it feels like. Because once you find it once, you can always find it. Mm. The, the problem is uh, it, it, you need to have somebody actually point it out to you and you feel it. And, and then, you, then the learning curve is so much faster. It's beautiful. What about the parts of the body where we actually don't have nerve entrapment? We actually have uh, too much movement, like the ulnar nerve on the medial side of the elbow. So what... Do you, do you feel like they're entrapped proximally or distally and per- potentially that's what's creating the hypermobility? Or? That problem occurs in fascia more than any other uh, tissue. If you think about it, how do, how do we work fascia? Have you been taught to work fascia? Friction. It's too, it's too tight and you loosen it up, oh, right? Sure. Yeah, yeah. Is it always too tight? It's a good question. Could it be too loose? <laughs> Very possible. How do you know? I'm going to guess you're going to tell us right now. <laughs> well, and I, I, mean, I think everyone's got their own genetic, yeah. uh, you know, soft tissue matrix too. Like, I mean, it's almost like a genetic sliding scale predisposition of like, you know, we've all palpated people that, you know, have tight fascia and then we have ones that kind of have loose fascia. Yes. There, there is that nebulous thing when it's really too tight, you can tell it's too tight. Right. But if you look at on, on the nervous system side, spindle cells are all over this, all, all over the place yeah. in, in the fascia, and myofibroblasts are all over the place in fascia. A lot more than when I went to school, myofibroblasts are oh, what a cute little cell, you know. Yeah. So so what? But they actually contract like muscle cells, although albeit slower. So what we need is a system to know when tension is, a, is affecting f- function. It's stability and control is what it is. I, I'm a geek. I'm an engineer. 
I look at it as stability and control, negative single loop negative feedback control systems. Yeah. When you when you start to affect that negative feedback control system aberrantly, then you have a problem in the tissue. And and in that case, it's usually something is too tight. Not always, but usually. Mm -hmm. So then you have to have a way to find where it's too tight and where it's normal. Right. And then only address the too tight spot. I, w once I once I figured that out, low back pain in particular, somewhere around half the low back patients, low back pain patients I see, the problem's not in the low back. It's in the fascia someplace. And it's along these chains, lines or chains, people call them different things. And you have to be able to sequentially isolate each segment in the chain and find out where where the source of the problem is. And then, then what you do is you treat the fascia between the, the last problem spot in the chain continuously through the problem uh, area, the symptomatic area. And that could be either side, it could be proximal or distal side of the chains. And how is active release teaching fascial, we'll start with the palpation and then we'll get into treatment. We're, we're not yet. Oh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm in the process of writing it. It's so tedious. You know, I, I don't do well with that tedious part. Yeah, I get it. I do better if I could just talk through it yeah. and have somebody else write it. Absolutely. So I'm actually brought two other people. They're going to help me write it. Okay. So. Beautiful. Well, and I mean, that kind of takes us into our, you know, one hidden agenda between behind coming here to talk to you about the nerves is we have a big nerve conference basically in, in uh, November. So Antonio Stecco, I know you, you talked to us beforehand, your, uh, Carla Stecco's book was a big influence on you. Huge. Uh, yeah, huge yes. influence when you're discussing this stuff. And uh, we're going to talk about, uh, Michael Shacklock, who literally wrote the book on neuromobilization and things like that. Uh, you're, you yourself are going to talk on similar topics. Mm -hmm. uh, I can't wait for the topics or, uh, you know, the cross conversation on fascia. I'm sure that there, there'll be some sparks of inspiration on both sides of the camps there. So, uh, yeah, wh wh where did that fascia start? I know you've, you kind of got a little bit of more of a spark on it uh, this time than the last time we saw you. Yeah. For, for example, there's, um, let's take low back pain. Uh, there are several areas of the fascia that can cause problems that go into the low back. And, and we know musk, if you look at the muscles, mm -hmm. you know, they're the functional chains, you know, we know what those are, we, but the fascial chains, you know, most people don't understand them completely. They know there's a line or a chain mm -hmm. and they're, they're all connected, but too many people say, Oh, it's all connected. Everything's connected yeah. to everything. And so, but what happens, and that's where the nervous system comes in to play, the, the fascia lata, for example, what, what if the, the IT band is mostly aponeurotic fascia where a lot of the fibers are longitudinally oriented. And so it's, it's chief communication is transmitting force, but it, that system transmits force several times faster than the nervous system can. But the fascia lata, the bulk of the fascia lata around the thigh isn't wired like that. So its, its primary function is sensing tension and position. And that signal goes to the spinal cord 
interuncial neurolateral spinal thalamic tract up to the brain, and it becomes the chief part feedback loop controlling what we do to the muscle. And But that's not oriented the same way the muscle is. Muscle crosses a joint and attaches to the bone, a bone on each side of the joint, you know, one, one or more joints across. Mm-hmm. This, this fascia is connected all the way through. Sure. So it's different. So you can't approach it the same way as we do muscles. So the segments that we look at at a time are generally across, across one joint. But in the area of the spine, for example, the, so, the psoas and the iliacus fascia coalesces and then extends past where it attaches on the femur and goes and surrounds the rectus femoris. So the rectus femoris and the psoas, although they're not connected, the muscles aren't. The fascia is. Right. So they work in concert with one another. Well, do you think then, you know, part of the amazing results with active release over all these years has been that you've inadvertently also been working with fascia without even, maybe you knew it, but didn't really talk about it as much? Yeah, we certainly didn't talk about it as much, but although we tell people you're probably working fascia sure. more than what we consider the contractile fibers of, of a muscle. Yeah. You're working fascia more than those fibers. Right. And so what we, what we always said is when you find aberrant tension, you need to follow that line of tension wherever it goes. And it doesn't always go where the muscle goes. So yeah, fix the muscle. That's the easy part. Mm-hmm. But then follow the line of tension. And, and you're following fascia mm-hmm. when you do that. But that was, has always been the approach. Start with the muscle, fix the muscle, and then follow the fascia. In uh, fascial manipulation, according to Stecco, um, the patient is very passive. Do you foresee an active release that the patient would be doing active motions during? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It's easier to do with the patient passive. But again, we, 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 we start, you know, lumping everything into, yeah. it's stiff this way, it's too tight. I'm, I'm, I'm going to treat it passively and everything, make everything looser. Right. More often than not, you're probably going to be correct. Yeah. But not always. Right. And, and I think when we do that, we don't, under, we don't really understand what's going on. Right. Another thing that happens with fascia, let, let's say I can, I can grab just proximal to the patella and I can stretch on that tissue really hard. And I'm going to affect the Golgi tendon organs, aren't I? And if I, if I push that fascia toward the patella just once with my hand, and then test the strength of the quadriceps, they're stronger. If I pull that fascia proximal off the patella, quadriceps get weaker instantly. Doesn't last. Right. So, and then another way you can do it, if I put my thumb right where the Golgi tendon organ is, and I just mash it, I can basically anesthetize the Golgi tendon organ. And it's really convincing to an athlete when you test the quadriceps strength and, you know, mash the Golgi tendon as, as much as they can take and then test the strength again, it's stronger. And it's going to be stronger for a period of time. How long you think? I, it's, it depends on so many things. I don't have a good answer to that, to be honest. Right. 
but I would venture to say it's not permanent change. Right. Unless you injure the Golgi tendon. Right. Then maybe it could be a permanent change. Because you have a lot of experience working with people with muscle activation technique, correct? Yeah. Or, yeah. Uh-huh. So, I mean, it's a good marriage, I'm assuming. Cause oh, you yeah. Work, yeah. It's really good. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think especially on a diagnostic routine, that's, that's really good. Yeah. Because it can tell you that there's a problem there. Yeah. And, uh, but what, what if you figured out exactly what that whole chain of fascia was doing and actually fix that, change the myofibroblasts in the fascia, which can be a relatively permanent change. Right. And, and then take the, and that takes the pressure off the Golgi tendon. Now you have a more permanent change. Do you think the treatment time for fascia is going to be different than muscles? So, like, I mean, if we do a couple, you know, active release passes, I mean, that can be done in a pretty short period of time when you're, you know. The more the problem is in contractile tissues, the faster there will respond mm. and the less time you have to treat it. But the more it's, uh, and I shouldn't say contractile tissues, muscle contractile tissues. Right. Uh, the more it gets into... Uh, myofibroblasts and cells that are even that less contractile than that. Right. Then you're going to have to spend more time. Okay, yeah. But I think just from experience, not from quantitative analysis, but from experience when, when I'm working with fascia, it usually takes 10 to 30 seconds of work to get those to change. And sometimes it's two minutes, but it's not a half an hour and it's not two seconds. So, yes, it's slower when you work fascia. Usually uh, in the, the stucco way of thinking that you might be using an elbow or you might be using a knuckle, are you still using your hand or what do you – what do you? Well, that's a, there's a trade-off there. When you use your elbow, you're going to irritate the tissues pretty well because the uh, pounds per square inch is going to go way up. Mm-hmm. So, but let's say I have to exert a – 15 pound tension on the myofibroblast and hold it for 20 seconds to get it to let it go. Just as an example. Okay. If I use my elbow in it, it's, it's easier to maintain that pressure. It's easier for the practitioner. Mm -hmm. But the problem is most, most of the force is going to be in compression rather than tension. And compression is not what fixes it. The tension is the holding of tension is what fixes it. So there's, there's the trade off. You want the pounds per square inch to be low, but you want the pounds to be high, which you, means a broad contact, which use, uses your hands. There's, there's another couple reasons for that. One is the patient, which is kind of important. The, the lower the PSI and, and the higher the pressure, the more comfortable it is. So if they're scarring, for example, in the fascia, I can go four times as hard doing it that way and break the fascia than I can with my elbow. Mm -hmm. Because first of all, the patient won't let me because it's too painful to exert that much force, tension on the tissues because it's too much compression. But the other thing is that tissue has a maximum as well. There's a tissue sensitivity. And, and you can generally feel that 
the tissue is starting to react. In a muscle, per se, once you add too much compression in particular, but it can go along with tension, but especially if you have too much compression, you'll just barely start to get a little quiver in the muscle. You just went too hard. And you're actually going to make them worse rather than better. And that happens all the time with the, at the elbow. You, yeah, you can pull the tissues loose, but you actually make the problem worse because you're causing inflammation. Right. Which will then cause scarring. And Their group, they used the term densification. That's the term that they, they like. Do you like that term or not? For talking about fascia? Because they really don't separate, you know, we've actually had them on our podcast and we asked them specifically, I mean, are you delineated between a trigger point, between adhesion, between a densification? And basically the answer was densification is densification. Densification is the problem? Right. Yeah. Well, I don't think that's wrong. Right. Because if, if I have a tissue, fascia or, or, or muscle, and it contracts you could feel that the tissue is more dense. Um, it isn't always. It could be harder, which some people palpate as density. So it, the densification isn't always an accurate term. But it but is, I think, appropriate. Right. Sure. Broad-based and, yeah. Sure, yeah. I think that the, what we were trying to get at, and you, you said this earlier, so I, I kind of know what the answer is, but I want you to elaborate on it. What's the difference between fascial restriction and muscle restriction? The, a muscle, if it has, if the modulus of elasticity goes down, it doesn't stretch as easily. And it also doesn't stretch as easily quickly, which is the more important part. You can get it to stretch, but if you try to do it fast, it'll tear because the elasticity went down. So for an athlete, that's absolutely the, the most critical part. So sprinter, their worst fear is a hamstring pull, but it's the modulus of elasticity in that that really does that. So, and you can apply that to fascia as well. It's, you know, elasticity. If the myofibroblasts are all contracted, it's less elastic. If you can tease them into relaxing, then it's more elastic. And so it'll, it'll stretch easier. Right. Mm -hmm. It'll still send, signal the spindle cells. Right. But in, it doesn't restrict motion. You, so am I answering your question? Oh, you are, yeah, yeah. Uh, which leads me to the next question. Um, you work with so many athletes, Mike. Do you see this, like the future of this, almost like a wellness chiropractic checkup to where, you know, these, these athletes don't have any pain, but they, you know, there's so many different things and components you could be doing to work on their athleticism. I mean. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's, do, do you see you, that you getting get done? Into, I, when I'm working with athletes, I look at it as. Okay, I'm, I'm solving an injury Right, is the most common one. What I like the, to do the most, though, is get into performance. And as some people think, well, well, you can't change performance. Well, of course you can. You know, it, if you have an athlete that has the talent and his quadriceps don't contract through a, me a mechanical restriction and you take the mechanical restriction, you just change performance. Right. You didn't change his talent. So you can't really take credit for what he does. He's the one doing it. Right. <laughs> he or she. 
And so, but you can change the, uh, you can take the stumbling blocks out of the way. Right. And, and, and in that change performance, that's what I like the most. Yeah. And the easiest place to see that is in a sport that takes a 100% effort. If you take a, a marathoner or an Ironman triathlete, there are so many factors in play. I can fix all these things. I don't know if that's going to make him faster. Right. What if it's hotter that day? Yeah. Right. He won't be as fast. And that takes so, some pressure off you, though. I mean, all you can do is work on what you find. That, that yeah. But the reason I'm, I'm being kind of long-winded about this is because generally what happens is people want to take credit for the athlete's performance. Oh, yeah. <laughs> As I work with you. So, then you got to take credit for it when it doesn't go Absolutely. Well. <laughs> yeah. We've all been and there. There are so many factors out of our control. Oh, when they God, do worse. Yeah. You yeah. still have oh, to take yeah. credit. You still eat if you that. take credit for the first one. So, but, so, you know, we're not changing his talent. But if I take the stumbling blocks away, that's what I like to do the most. Watch what he's doing. Right. So, you know, I'm, I'm a geek. I'm an engineer. And, and I, I understand feedback loop and control systems, stability control. And, and so if you combine all those two and you see somebody the way they move, you can see what's holding him back. And then, and then I use the diagnostic algorithm and figure out what tissue that is doing. And I fix it. They get up again. They're better. And they're faster. And should you expect then that when you re-video it to see something different on the uh, video? Absolutely. Yeah, okay. Yeah, 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 you definitely see it re-video. Re but you can see it. You know, you can fix that in five minutes. There's the change. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and it's a relatively permanent change. Right. Uh, and I know you have like a very holistic global approach when you work with like a, a patient and you don't necessarily always treat the side of complaint, of course. What are yeah. some of the, what are some of the things to like put some boundaries on that though? I mean, you know, it can't just be, well, it can be anywhere. Like, well, I'll start with, uh, working with a football team, for example. Mm -hmm. So the trainer will say the ankles hurt. So I'll try to fix the ankle. And do what I can to fix the ankle. But in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, why did the ankle get hurt? Well, in football, they kind of bump into each other. So, you know, it <laughs> may not be it. anything biomechanical. It just be, could be impact. Right. Or his ankle. But I'll check. And, I, and, I'll, and I'll check the, mo the strength and motion in the position that they're doing uh, that where they got hurt or, or, or take a random one, a compound motion and, and check that check. But if I have a lot of time, then the, then I'll, I'll screen the entire person. The SFMA is a great way to do that. Mm. And that, that gives you starting points for lots of problems. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I love it. It's good. Uh, well, we nailed it. We went way, way longer than we thought we were going to, which is usually how it works. So thank you for your time. I Mike. talk a lot. No, that's no, a good thing. Perfect. Got it. It was so, so informative. So, uh, I just got to give one more plug for uh, the first weekend in November at Parker University in Dallas. Uh, it's going to be an amazing weekend. So uh, the two of you talking on your your respective uh, disciplines, Antonio Stecco, Michael Shacklock, Jeffrey Bove, uh, Bill Morgan, Annie O'Connor, 
uh, it's going to be amazing. So uh, stay tuned for registration links and stuff like that. The the flyer is on our gestaltedu.com, uh, on our Instagram and things like that. Uh, stay tuned for the ART fascia course coming soon. So uh, I can't wait to, to I see I wish you. it was tomorrow. Aaron's wishing it was tomorrow, too. Yeah. So uh, yeah. that's right. So uh, thank you, Aaron, for setting this up for us again. Uh, guys, come out here and take a course in this uh, beautiful area. If you're watching on the YouTube uh we're washed out because I wanted to have the beautiful mountains in the background. So we out here in Colorado Springs. Uh, thanks again, and uh, good luck with patience. Thanks for guys. coming by. Yeah, yeah, yeah thanks, thanks for, yeah, it's always appreciate fun. you. Yep. All right, guys. See you next time. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Gasol Education Show. Uh, if you liked it, share it, subscribe to it, uh, send it to your friends, send it to someone that needs to hear this message. Uh, we really want everyone to be able to, to tune in and, and get the, the best clinical advice that they can, which uh, we're hoping that we're giving to you with these special guests. So um, if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out to us, or if you have any suggestions on upcoming uh, conversations, let us know. Uh, for a list of our upcoming courses, we're adding them all the dang time. So go to gestaltedu.com, click on courses, and they'll all be right there for you. All right, have a good day.